Black Doctor. Hello, welcome back to Black Doctors Podcast. I am Stephen, your host. Man, it was a good weekend. I actually got to connect in real life with Dr. Robert Ray. You may remember him from a couple episodes ago. He is an emergency medicine physician and toxicology fellow. He came on the show. He shared his experience during residency where he went toe-to-toe with HR for supporting you know, Black Lives Matter and different social justice issues. And he was in town. He hit me up and we were able to get together and grab brunch. So it was a good time. Really, it was good to meet him in person. This is the fifth week of the month. So, so we're wrapping up January. And in addition to being an anesthesiologist and critical care medicine physician, I have a special kind of niche in medical ethics. I was able to do a fellowship in medical ethics during residency training. And I've used it in a couple of different hospitals that I've worked at, working on different ethics committees. So I've even launched you know, a podcast in the past about medical ethics. Curbside Ethics was the name of the show. It's still out, I think. I'm pretty sure their episodes are still up, but I don't actively uh, record for that show. But I do plan on incorporating some of that into the Black Doctors podcast, especially on months where there's five weeks. By a fifth week, I'll talk about medical ethics. I was gearing up to discuss some of the ethical implications of artificial intelligence in medicine. That's my, my newest niche that I'm really reading and digging into the literature on and, and beginning to write and work on a couple of different presentations. But as I was preparing to record, something came up that I, I had to kind of segue over to and address. So on the 25th of January, the state of Alabama used a new method to administer state-sanctioned killing, also known as capital punishment, and executed Kenneth Eugene Smith. What's interesting about their choice and how they executed him was it was a novel technique in the U.S., especially in the criminal justice system. They used a technique called nitrogen hypoxia. I discussed this on social media. I did an Instagram live. I'm um, not usually on Instagram live unless I'm making music or playing around the synthesizer, but I discussed it briefly. I think I got kind of shadow banned because of the subject matter, but I re-recorded and tried to avoid some of the more sensitive words and terminology. So I'm going to dig a little deeper. You know, fortunately I have this other platform to discuss. So we're talking about capital punishment today, talking about this technique of nitrogen hypoxia, and then some of the ethical implications of capital punishment. So Kenneth Smith, he was convicted in a murder-for-hire plot down in Alabama. Essentially, there is this pastor. It always starts in a church, right? So this is like, we call it murder mysteries, or my wife watches those shows all the time, like like Dateline and whatnot, where they they dig into the true crime. It's a whole genre of podcasting that that just blows up. I'm not really a a true crime person, but... Here we go. So what happened was there was a pastor, of course, always starts in the church, Mr. Charles Sinnott. He was like, hey, I want to kill my wife. And we do have to center the victim in all this, Miss Elizabeth Sinnott. So this guy decides to kill his wife. He hires somebody else. And then this guy subcontracts two other people. And they're going to pay these guys a grand each to kill this woman. And back in, this is like 30 years ago, so 1988, these guys went and they killed this man's wife. They were supposed to use a firearm. They had money to to buy a firearm, but it said they used the money on drugs. And then they ultimately got a knife and then murdered this woman, this poor woman. 
poor innocent woman. So they come on the scene, they investigate and initially I guess she still had a pulse and then she passed away en route to the hospital. So they, they kept investigating this crime. They looked around the house. They're like, okay, it looks like it's been a home invasion, but it looks like it's been staged. They stole like a video cassette recorder, a stereo system. And then they remembered meeting this person before. And during the investigation, like things started to look suspicious. And then there was like the crime stopper tip. I don't remember those when we were growing up, like, oh, you know, call crime stoppers. I think there was rewards and stuff for giving tips. But somebody gave them a tip with the suspect's name. And then they bring in this pastor for questioning. And he's like, oh, no, I didn't do it. had nothing to do with it. When he went to leave, they actually asked him, hey, do you know this guy, like one of the guys that you hired, Kenneth Smith? And, you know, he had a obvious response. And they're like, okay, it's something going on. So the pastor went from the interview, went to his church, met with his sons, his families. He told him, hey, I've been having an affair and I had your mother killed. Then he went to the church parking lot and got in his truck with his firearm. And that, that was that. He basically didn't live to stand trial. So everybody else got kind of wrapped up and... They went to court. Initially, he was found guilty of murder and recommended that he be executed. The vote was 10 to 1. Prior to 2017 in the state of Alabama, the jury, if fewer than 10 jurors voted for the death sentence, then that would constitute a life sentence. But the judge didn't have to like necessarily follow the recommendation. So he sentenced to death in 1989 and then... They vacated that on appeal in 92. From the second trial, the jury recommended a life sentence, voted 11 to 1, but the judge overruled their recommendation and sentenced him to death, which is crazy that one, no one man should have all that power. So he's on the death, on death row since, you know, 1996. So his accomplice was also sentenced to death. And however, and then the third accomplice was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. One person was executed in 2010 by a lethal injection, and then the other person passed away in prison. So Kenneth Smith, he was continuing with these different appeal attempts. So he was supposed to be executed by lethal injection in November of 2022. It kind of went back and forth. There was different motions they always filed to to get a stay of execution. It's about 745 on November 17th. They know, you know, they're following these appeals, but he's supposed to go to the death chamber. He talks to his wife about eight o'clock at night, gets off the phone with her. He goes to the execution chamber. A couple minutes later, they issued a stay of execution. And so his lawyers are like, hey, you got to hold off on this execution. But they, the, the Department of Corrections didn't really do anything about it. They just kind of drew up their feet. They left this guy strapped to the gurney in the execution chamber. Mind you, like he went there at like eight o'clock and then around 10 o'clock, right? It's been a stay of execution, granted, but at 10 o'clock, he's in there. They proceed and try to place an IV into his arm. And eventually about 1030, the Supreme Court's like, they, they lift the stay of execution. It's supposed to continue as planned. So they tried to get IV access and Kenneth was like, hey, that's in a muscle it's it's not uh, actually going to work. So it sounds like in the story is being told, they have a lot of trouble obtaining IV access. So then it describes this weird tale, especially for somebody that like is not in healthcare, where 
in, in Wikipedia, which I'm reading right now, in other stories describe him being put in an inverted crucifixion position. But basically he's trapped down to this gurney or this table, and then they put him in Trendelenburg. So essentially, you know, looking at it from a medical perspective, they're setting him up to place a central line. So somebody comes in and tries to place a central line. They stick him a bunch of times and they aren't able to get access. So this goes on until like 1120. And then he ends up, they, they call off the whole thing and he goes back to his cell. So we'll talk in a bit about kind of who's involved in these executions, because, you know, that obviously dictates how a lot of that stuff went down with not being able to get an IV in and, you know, placing a central line and all that. So they decide they're going to try again in 2024, January, and Alabama has this new technique, nitrogen hypoxia. This was a secondary execution method. They'd never actually used it. And I, in my Instagram Live, I incorrectly referred to this as nitrous hypoxia. So nitrous is an anesthetic gas that we use. This is nitrogen, which is just the inert gas that is composes 80% of the air that we breathe. So he had, you know, of course, additional stays of execution appealed or appeal attempts that were made and had his last meal, steak, hash browns, eggs, eight hours before he was said to be executed. So they, they did seemingly follow NPO guidelines for an anesthetic, which is interesting. And he was ultimately pronounced dead at 825 that night. It took about 20 to 25 minutes. His last words were said to be tonight, Alabama causes humanity to take a step backwards. Thank you for supporting me. Love all of you. And he became the first person in the world to be executed by nitrogen hypoxia. So the gas was administered for 15 minutes, and then he was officially pronounced dead 25 minutes after they began administering the gas. From observations, it appeared that death occurred around 10 to 15 minutes after the administration of the gas when all movement from him ceased. They said about for the first two to five minutes or so, he thrashed violently and, and breathed heavily for at least five minutes there was a kind of secretions into the mask, and then there was reportedly some convulsions and shaking, plus minus whether those are involuntary movements, because uh, these people reporting are, one I've heard stories from the uh, parishioner, the priest that administered last rites, and then the Alabama Corrections Commissioner who was there. So it, it's hard to tell if any of this is coming from any type of medical professional. So truly a heartbreaking story all around, beginning with the murder of Mrs. Elizabeth Sinnett. So we'll jump into some of the ethics, some of the ethical arguments against state sanction. I am personally against it, which is weird. You know, the way I, was, I grew up in a Judeo-Christian, very religious household, it was preached an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, kind of from the Bible that you kill somebody, you deserve to die. And I've since, you know, re thought that and have different opinions on that. And we'll get into some of the reasons why. First is human rights and dignity. So at some point, you know, because somebody has done X, then they deserve Y. They are so inhuman that we are going to, as a state, violate their right to life. So capital punishment violates this fundamental human right to life. The state has a moral authority and should not be engaging in actions that deliberately take someone's 
life, regardless of what crime they have committed. If somebody commits a horrible crime, there's ways to keep them from committing that crime again. That doesn't necessitate, you know, taking their life. There's dignity of the individual. So capital punishment is degrading. It's inhumane. There's arguments that even those convicted of the most heinous crimes do retain their human dignity and executing them contradicts this principle of treating everybody with respect. It's ironic because it is a, a non sequitur because for capital punishment or state sanctioned murder, we are trying to find the most humane way to execute somebody. Let that sink in the most humane way to take someone's life. That's a, such a crazy concept because the, the end result is the most egregious that we have in society, but we want to find a way to make it peaceful. I'll talk briefly about kind of physician aid and dying. And because I have different thoughts about that than, than most people as well, but it's, you know, we're, we're, are, are we really treating that person? I, I hesitate you know, they're not a patient. There's not, they're not receiving medical care, but the person that that state has decided to execute treating them humanely in their last minutes on earth as the state takes their life is just it's crazy. There's a second point with regards to why we should not engage in state-sanctioned executions, there's that risk of an irreversible error. We know the justice system is far from perfect. There's always a possibility of judicial errors leading to the execution of innocent people. The irreversible nature of capital punishment means that any error or miscarriage of justice cannot, you can't fix it. It's bad enough when we lock people up for years on bad evidence or just racism and they get released and then they get, you know, a couple grand and the state has taken so many years out of their life. But this is irreversible. There's no going back. There is this ethical dilemma of obviously potentially executing an innocent person. It's been done. It's been done before in the history of this country. We know we've executed innocent people. Usually they're black. So that alone is is a good reason to advocate against capital punishment. And then uh, finally, it's it's not been shown to be effective as a deterrent. The death penalty does not effectively deter crime more than any other form of punishment for crime. Some studies suggest that the threat of execution may not significantly reduce the incidence or, or the incidence of serious crimes. This then leads us to question the ethical justification of using a punishment that may not serve its intended purpose while carrying out that risk of irreversible harm. So, you know, it's in the court systems, not infrequently, the different ethical and legal arguments against capital punishment. I know growing up, we saw people protesting and again, based on the religion and that Judeo-Christian values, it was just like, oh, those are the liberals and they just want to, you know, treat prisoners nice. And it's like, it's so much more than that because in the same bible that people use to justify killing people knife it also says to love your neighbor and to do to intend to not kill right so it's crazy how people are selective in the biblical verses they use to justify whatever they're whatever they want to justify there's central discussions surrounding the abolition or retention of the death penalty in various legal systems and those will continue to go on I like to contrast this, right? We're so far, you know, Alabama created a whole new way of killing somebody, but they won't 
allow women to make their own decisions about their own child care, right? Or their own reproductive care. Also, there's the whole subject of physician aid and dying. Some refer to it as euthanasia, physician-assisted suicide, which I do support for patients, you know, that, that do have the autonomy and have some valid reason, you know, for us to deem somebody's reason for no longer wanting to live as valid is, you know, is a fine line. We have to discuss, you know, the mental health and wellness, but for some people, it's most oftenly, it's most often appropriate for people with in stages of the disease, of disease, diseases that are, that we know are irreversible and they'd like to have death with dignity. It's done not infrequently in Canada and other countries with overall good results, good outcomes and patient satisfaction. In that case, it is a patient, right? Because you're, you're treating somebody, you're treating their pain that they're experiencing, their intractable pain and suffering, which is still in line with what we do as physicians and those in healthcare. For state-sanctioned murder, there is no patient. We're not treating anybody. There's no physician or there should not be any physician involvement in that regard. And there really shouldn't be anybody from the medical field that is participating. We'll get into that a little bit more in a little bit, but that is not a patient. So it's crazy that you're adding healthcare essentially because you're trying to make people comfortable while the state kills them. And then what's the most efficient, effective way of, of doing so? Crazy. It's hard to wrap your head around. The concept of physician aid and dying, you know, they're starting to be changes in some laws and some states are starting to be a little more friendly towards allowing um, at least conversations about this. And I think it's definitely a step in the right direction. I wanted to spend the last couple minutes digging kind of into the process of executions and specifically what happened in this situation. So most commonly we use lethal injections. We've gone through so many barbaric methods of executing people. Again, it's barbaric that we're executing people and then we're executing them in a barbaric manner from firing squads to hangings to an electric chair. Lethal injections are the most common method of execution in the U.S. And one of the issues there is that specific drugs used can vary based on jurisdiction, where you're at, what state, due to legal and logistical factors. There's usually a three-drug combination that would consist of an anesthetic or a sedative they're using things like sodium thiopental or pentobarbital to induce unconsciousness to ensure that this person does not feel pain or distress during the execution. They administer a paralytic, which causes paralysis and ability to breathe, would eventually lead to respiratory arrest. And then potassium chloride, which is used to induce cardiac arrest by stopping the heart. One of the issues with lethal injection is that some drugs have been unavailable to use for this purpose due to ethical concerns and legal challenges. So when we talk about pharma, big pharma, and how unethical big pharma is, ironically, big pharma is like, hey, you cannot take our drugs and use them to kill people. I know there is debates about propofol, which is a medication, right? As an anesthesiologist, I use these frequently in my practice. Sodium, thiopental, and pentobarbital are, are older medications that we don't, we rarely use, if ever, for anesthetics. But neuromuscular blockade, we use and... You know, obviously in critical care and medicine, you're administering potassium. We know the results of, of potassium supplementation. But there was a whole issue with propofol because some places wanted to use that for assisting in lethal injection. And the company that manufactured it was like, no, absolutely not. If you 
use this drug, we will no longer ship it to the U.S. So that went away. So as these drugs are becoming unavailable, many states have had to modify their lethal injection protocols or seek alternative methods. Some states are only using single drugs like high-dose barbiturates or pentobarbital. This is a controversial issue because, again, you know, how technically are you even receiving expert consultation from a physician? I would question their ethics. Uh, well, I wouldn't question their ethics, but my ethics, and I think the ethics of most physicians, would not be aligned with creating the optimal, the optimal concoction with which to take somebody's life. That that goes against arguably all the values that, that we espouse in medicine. Some of the legal challenges and concerns about ethics of certain drugs and difficulties in obtaining these substances have led to changes in the execution methods used in different jurisdictions. Some states, you know, due to the reluctance of pharmaceutical companies to supply these drugs, have to, to use something different. And in 27 states, there is the death penalty. Oklahoma actually has a nitrogen chamber as well. I guess they haven't used it yet. And Alabama beat them to the punch. But as... Alabama has now set the precedent. We'll see how things escalate and where they go from here. A physician's role in capital punishment is complex, controversial. The American Medical Association, other medical professions, American Society of Anesthesiologists prohibits their members from participating in executions. We had the same issues, you know, when the CIA is operating black sites overseas and torturing people. There's military physicians and other people that are okay with providing their their knowledge and skill set to facilitate these you know these interrogations and these state sanctioned killings but the guidelines by our organizations say do not do it the state and the judicial systems do have some consultations and, and some consultants was reading up on this and they do their best to protect them and so we don't know who they are because and and I'm sure they do everything they can to keep those uh, th- those names and those people, those positions under wraps. Because obviously, like if word got out, that would not be good. And they they have a vested interest in obtaining that expertise, which would be otherwise difficult to come by. The commitment of physicians, you know, we we are here to preserve life, promote health. This discourages participation in any activity that involves actively taking somebody's life. This is different from the law of double effect, right? In the ICU, I have, obviously I haven't executed patients. We don't do that, but, you know, we have withdrawn life-sustaining measures. There are comfort care protocols that are common. They're probably in every hospital. And again, the big difference there is that you are still treating the patient. You're treating pain. And if they have irreversible illness and there's little hope for recovery, but they're in a tremendous amount of pain, then it is permissible ethically, medically, legally to administer analgesia, pain medication, opioids in order to treat pain. And if the second effect is that it does contribute to their passing, then that is ethically okay. But again, for state-sanctioned killings, they're, they're not treating anything. And they're, they're furthermore are not healthcare providers that are overseeing this that we know of, right? Because they can't say if there are or are not. Specifically with uh, physician involvement, so the direct involvement or administration of lethal injections, we're prohibited from doing that. That would be, man, that would be crazy if you 
were exposed as a physician that was actually injecting and executing people. Yeah, I don't even know what to say if that came out. We're not really able to even prescribe or administer drugs for carrying out executions. This does carry over into physician aid and dying where there's some, you know, if you're involved in that work, there's going to be some hoops you have to jump through to make sure that it's legal and appropriate in order to get those patients the care they need. We've talked extensively about the conflicts with medical ethics, the the duty to do no harm and our commitment that we've taken to preserve life. And then the murkier area would be the indirect involvement or witnessing executions. So as physicians, we're discouraged from participating directly in executions. Some may choose to serve as witnesses or provide medical oversight during the process. This is still obviously controversial. It still involves you as a medical professional in an activity that negates your profession, results in the taking of a human life. But some people may argue ethically that if they weren't to get involved, then it would be even more inhumane and more barbaric and there would be more suffering. You know, slippery slope, because that's what you say about being the physician that helps with torture and, you know, and you the person that's checking out the prisoner as they get waterboarded and resuscitating them and all that. Like, it's the same kind of logic. The legal and professional ramifications. So in many states, laws prohibit or restrict the participation of physicians in executions. Participating in an execution could lead to professional and legal consequences, including potential revocation of your medical license. It's important to note that the ethical stance against physician involvement in execution is not universally accepted and opinions may vary. However, major medical organizations in the United States generally discourage such involvement, emphasizing the importance of maintaining the integrity of the medical profession and upholding ethical standards. There's a little doubt in my mind that if at some point along the way a physician was like exposed that they were involved in state-sanctioned killings, I, I honestly think the state would probably support them because they have a vested interest in, in ensuring their consultant continues to work. But that's just my thoughts. With regards to the execution itself... I, again, I incorrectly stated that it was a nitrous nitrous hypoxia. Nitrous is two molecules of nitrogen with a molecule of oxygen, I believe, and then nitrogen gas, I think it's just nitrogen. In terms of the suffering that was experienced, it, it's interesting to hear the explanations and what was what they saw. From different accounts I've read, there was two to three minutes of writhing. There was some secretions in the mask, and then there was some like deep breathing and then then no breathing. So it's interesting to hear a process described that I've seen, not, obviously not not in execution, but seeing patients expire or pass away. And one, I think it's interesting to note that they had the patient or had the prisoner NPO for eight hours. So that you know, decreased the risk of him vomiting into the mask, which I'm sure would just make people uncomfortable, although they're not uncomfortable enough to not kill this man. Is it painful? Because there was descriptions of, okay, is he in pain? Is he tortured through his last couple minutes on this earth? I would say yes and no. Not because of the method of his execution, but I can't even fathom knowing that in the next three to five minutes, I would be dead. And in order for that to occur, I would need to do a thing that's kept me alive for however many years, which is breathe. So... As an anesthesiologist, as an intensivist, as somebody that works with these medications, works with volatile anesthetics and gas, I hypothesize, this is just me spitballing, that 
what they witnessed was him, you know, you have a mask, drop a mask to his face and then there was a hose with nitrogen. So some of it depends, you know, how much nitrogen, what was that mixture? Again, the air we breathe is about 80% nitrogen or, or inert gases and then oxygen. So they had to increase that fraction of inspired nitrogen to a lethal level or decrease his fraction of inspired oxygen. I'm not sure how quickly you would experience that hypoxia. You would probably experience air hunger depending on how they, what kind of mixture they administered. But I know pretty much for certain that you would hold your breath because you know you're going to die if you breathe in that gas. So what they probably saw was him holding his breath for as long as was humanly possible before having to take that deep breath of that toxic uh, toxic gas that he was being administered. There's also that that horrifying thought of he didn't know probably when they were going to start administering the gas. He just knew they had a, he had a mask on his face and there's probably I don't know if there's a countdown or what. So the the agony, the anxiety of those last minutes, those last hours is absolutely horrible. Almost to the point that, you know, it doesn't matter if it was a, a firing squad or hanging or the electric chair, you know, the end result's the same, but psychologically it, it's torture. So I, I think physically it probably wasn't painful, but there was likely some air hunger. And again, he probably held his breath for a recent period of time. And then by the time he took a, a deep breath, he would have become hypoxic. He, you know, the oxygen going to his brain, his reticular activating system, all the things that make you breathe, that keep you conscious would quickly decrease. The oxygen going to his coronary arteries would decrease. And depending on, you know, the oxygen uptake, whatever, the, the brain would go first, likely, or at least drift off into a state of unconsciousness. And then minutes later, you know, he would expire. So it's, you know, his last words... I think we can kind of go, I think his last words we can go back to in that tonight Alabama causes humanity to take a step backwards. I think that pretty much sums it up. I don't usually put my thoughts and beliefs out. And, you know, as an ethicist, you typically, I mean, in ethical meetings and consultations, a lot of it is up to the patient and what they're experiencing, what their values are. And it's interesting in that regard, but... These are two things uh, that you know, I wanted to use this platform. One, I don't believe we should be supporting state-sanctioned murder. And two, I do believe that this was an, an incredibly inhumane thing to do, essentially experimenting on a human being. I do, once again, want to center the victim, Mrs. Sinette. Horrible, horrible that they murdered her. What are your thoughts on capital punishment? What are your thoughts on physician aid in dying? Thanks for listening. If you made it this far to the episode, heavy topic. As I was, re- as I was talking, I was like, oh, this is kind of dark. But interested in hearing your thoughts. Thank you for all your support. Uh, the podcast is doing fantastic. We've had some great numbers in the new year. It's not all about numbers, but each number represents a listener that we've been able to touch and to reach and to hopefully inspire. And just so honored to be able to share these incredible stories of these awesome people that take the time to come on the show. Stay tuned as we get some content up for Black History Month and definitely continue to be inspired. 
Thank you for tuning in to the Black Doctors Podcast. We're here because representation matters.